passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, So glad that you are here with us this morning. This morning, we're actually going to begin a new series on the book of Philippians. This past week, Pastor Kurt and I were talking about how uh, we um, just didn't really feel comfortable going back to the gospel of Mark um, during this season of uncertainty and and social distancing. So we're actually going to take a look for um, about a month or two uh, at the book of Philippians. Um, And we're calling this series A Guide to Joy, and that's such an appropriate title uh, for the book of Philippians because we see, even though Philippians is just a short book, it's only four chapters long, it is uh, filled with these commands and these examples of why we as a people are supposed to be joyful, why we are to rejoice and uh, to to focus our our hopes uh, and, and our joys, not on our experiences today, but but on uh, who Christ is and what he has done for us. And so um, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're beginning this series. Paul, actually, uh, as he's talking to the church in Philippi, he, he, he encourages them not just to be joyful, but to actually look at him as an example uh, of joy. And, and that's for good reason. Paul is writing this letter while he finds himself in prison or under house arrest in Rome around 60 AD. About 10 years before that, Paul was actually the one who planted the church around 50 AD, planted the church in Philippi. It was a part of his second missionary journey. Acts 16, which we're going to be looking at this morning, tells us about how Paul uh, was used by God to start the church in Philippi and and, uh, how how he also suffered um, a great deal of hardship in the town of Philippi. He was beaten. He was thrown in jail. He was actually kicked out of town for sharing the gospel. And so, when Paul tells the church in Philippi to follow his example, uh, what he says here in Philippians chapter 1, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, notice these words, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What Paul is saying there is that many of you were there. Many of you remember the the conflict that I had when I planted the church in Philippi 10 years ago. What's more, some of you or now all of you recognize that I am imprisoned for the sake of the gospel right now. And for some of the people that are there that are part of this church in Philippi before they were believers, before they were Christians, they were actually part of those who, who actually caused Paul to suffer 10 years before this letter was written. And so by way of introduction this morning to this book, to this letter, I want us to just consider the origins of the church of Philippi for us to, con- uh, to, to familiarize ourselves with this book and some of the major themes of this letter. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 16. We're going to spend our time in Acts 16 this morning, as well as in the book of Philippians, just looking at a, key, uh, a couple key passages that, that reveal to us some of the themes of this book. And I, as we consider this letter over the coming weeks, I want us to just let one charge really sink deep into our hearts. And this is really something we're going to continue to come back to time and time again as we are going through this book. And it is this, live worthy of the Lord who opened your heart to the gospel. If we were to sum up the the letter to the church in Philippi, it would simply be that. Live worthy of the Lord who opened your heart to the gospel. 
So this morning we're going to work through Acts chapter 16, and then we're going to follow that by four different themes that will crop up continually in the gospel, or I, I'm used to Mark, uh, in the book of Philippians, not in the gospel of Mark. But before we do that, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we first uh, come to you asking that you would help us to rightly handle and understand your word. We rejoice that you have given us your spirit, that we lack nothing because of Christ Jesus. And as we begin our study in Philippians this morning uh, with the, the story of the church's origins and acts, God, we, we ask that you would encourage us through the example of this church from thousands of years ago. Lord, we confess that the same God who was at work in Philippi in, in 50 AD and 60 AD is the exact same God who was at work today. And so we ask that you would, <clears throat> we ask that you would help us to look to you for direction, to look to you for guidance, to expectantly wait upon you, expecting you to, wait, to work in a mighty way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you again to open up to Acts chapter 16, and, and we're going to see how the church in Philippi began. And uh, Acts 16 starts with Paul's uh, second missionary journey, verses 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and throw that map up there. Uh, verses 1 through 5 tell us that Paul is actually first, he's ministering in central Turkey, uh, which is... Um, right about here. We, we see a couple different places where, where Paul is, is ministering to early in the book of, uh, or in, in Acts chapter 16. And apparently, according to Acts 16, 1 through 5, it tells us that, that he desired to go and minister in Asia. Asia is this pink section right here. It is the, the province uh, uh, in the Roman Empire of Asia. So we're not thinking of actual Asia, what we think of, but this part of Asia Minor. Paul desired to come and serve the Lord. Lord and, and to share the gospel with, with people and uh, the cities here in, in the pink region of, of, uh, of modern-day Turkey. But Acts 16, 1 through 5 tells us that God forbid him to do so. And so from there, Paul and his companions decided to head north. And they said, okay, well, if God is not going to allow us to, to minister here in Asia, we're actually going to go north to Bithynia. Bithynia is this blue area right here, and he desires to instead plant churches up in the northern part of Asia Minor as well. But what we see again in Acts chapter 16 is that God prevented him again from ministering there in that region. And I imagine that this is quite a conundrum for Paul as he is really trying to discern the Lord's calling. God has given him many places where he cannot go, but God actually hasn't given him any direction of where to go instead. And so we find ourselves in verse 8 of Acts chapter 16. In verse 8, Paul and his companions, they're spending the night in Troas, which is a port city on the Aegean Sea. I'm actually going to point to it right here. This is really nice having this right next to me. Uh, Troas is right here. So they're spending the night in Troas, when we see that Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man, Acts chapter 16, verse 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's go ahead and go back to our map. 
So Paul is, is here in Troas. He has now received some sort of, of guidance from God that, no, you're not supposed to serve here in, in Asia. You're not supposed to serve up here in Bithynia. And now he has a vision from God to instead serve in Macedonia. Macedonia is this orange region over here on this side of the map. Uh, Macedonia is in modern-day Greece in the northern part of the country. And, and Paul has this vision from God of someone who is from Macedonia saying, Paul, come over here and help us with the gospel. And so Paul and his, 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 excuse me, his companions, they, they leave Thro- uh, Troas and they sail all the way to Neapolis, which is a port city near Philippi, and then they strategically head to Philippi. Philippi was one of the larger cities in that region, and so they decide that that is going to be a strategic place for them to plant the gospel. This is what Paul does in his missionary journeys. He goes to a strategic location where he plants a church, and from there, that church will plant other churches as well. And what we see in Acts chapter 16 is that Paul and his friends Silas and, and Timothy and Luke are there for what in verse 12 is said to be some days. Now, it's apparent, as we look at Acts chapter 16, that the the Jewish population in Philippi is negligible. There's not that many Jewish people because there's no synagogue in Philippi. And Paul, as he was going on his missionary journeys, he would normally go to the synagogue first and share the gospel with the Jewish people. but, But there was no synagogue for him to go to when they got to Philippi. But at the same time, there was this common practice, this tradition among those who were Jews and scattered about, not in the uh, nation of Israel, and those who were called God-fearers. This is a term for Gentiles who trusted in and believed in the God of Israel, that when there was not a synagogue, they would gather together for prayer and worship on the Sabbath, on Saturdays, and they would do so near a river. And so that's where Paul decides to start when he gets to Philippi. Notice his educated guesswork in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed, I love that language, where we supposed, we just guessed, we assumed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul and his companions, they go outside of the city limits of Philippi. They go to a river, and when they get there, they find this prayer meeting of women who are God-fearers, those who trust or who follow the God of Israel. And Paul actually seizes the opportunity that he has before them, before him to share the gospel with these women. And we don't know how many women are there. The text doesn't tell us. We also don't know how many women responded to Paul's invitation of the gospel. But Luke does tell us the name and the story of one of these women. Let's pick up in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love those words. This is such a powerful story of of Lydia's conversion. Paul shares the gospel again. We don't know how many other women are there. We don't know how many of them respond to the message, but we know that at least one of them did. Lydia is a Greek from Asia Minor, from this region where Paul desired originally to go and minister, but God said no. She's a woman from Asia Minor, this godfather, and she, not godfather, God-fearer, and she responds to the call of the gospel. How? 
Well, verse 14 gives us the answer. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel. I love that language. That right there is incredible mercy. Because here is Paul, and he desires to go and serve the Lord to share the gospel in the region of Asia, and God says no. From there, he desires to go north to Bithynia to share the gospel and plant churches, and God says no. God says, instead, I want you to go to Macedonia, and he sends Paul this vision of a Macedonian man. And then Paul ends up in Philippi with his companions, and he just decides to go to this riverside. And when he gets there, he shares the gospel indiscriminately with these women. And then what happens? Before Lydia responds to the message of the gospel, it tells us in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to Paul's words. The Lord opened her heart so that she could respond to the message of the gospel. Immediately, Lydia gets baptized and she invites Paul and his companions into her home to stay at her house. Throughout the ages, the, the, one of the clearest signs of the Christian faith is actually hospitality. And that's exactly what Lydia does the moment after she is converted. She wakes up, uh, just, just notice this contrast. She wakes up on Saturday morning and she's a religious woman, but she's dead in her sins. But when her head hits her pillow that night, she's a child of God. All because the Lord opened her heart to hear and to pay attention to the message of the gospel. And Lydia and her household believe, trust in, and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that right there is how Jesus, Jesus begins to build his church in Philippi. Now, we don't know how long Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are ministering in Philippi, but Luke actually uh, records this encounter that happens over and over and over while they are ministering and serving the church and serving the people of Philippi. It, it starts in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met a, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So here we have Paul. He's, he's continuing to minister, continuing to serve in Philippi. And this little girl is he encounters this little girl who is in bondage to the enemy. She is possessed by demons. It's not explicit in this passage, but I think uh, there's good reason to believe that this girl actually becomes a believer at the end of these verses that we just read, just like Lydia. One of the reasons, of course, is Acts 16. Uh, we see this narrative in Acts 16 centers around three different stories or three different encounters that Paul has. One with Lydia, one with this girl, and then one with the jailer at the end of Acts 16. Lydia and the jailer, they both believe and become Christians. They're saved through the power of God. And the exact same thing happens here. Paul encounters this woman, she is, this little girl. She is saved by the power of God. And I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't need Satan's help to build his church. 
Here's what I mean by that. This is an ironic passage, isn't it? This girl is known throughout Philippi for being able to tell the future, and it appears that she is actually being used by God to legitimize the message of Paul and Silas. Everyone trusts her. They think they know that there's something special about her, and she is actually saying, basically, hey, listen to these people. They are going to tell you about who, the, who can save you through the power of God. And the pragmatist in us says, well, the, the ends justify the means, right? After all, what Satan intends for evil, God is now using for good. But here's a reminder to us. Jesus doesn't need Satan to help build his church. This is the Lord who can open hearts at, at his desire. Open the heart of Lydia so that she will pay attention and understand the gospel message. This is the Lord who directs Paul all the way to Philippi, and he doesn't need the help of an evil spirit to legitimize his message of salvation. The Lord Jesus hates to see his image bearers in bondage, just like this little girl. He hates to see them in torment to the enemy. And so, he uses Paul's words to deliver her from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And again, we see that the Lord Jesus continues to build his church in Philippi. Now, of course, the, the slave owners are none too thrilled with what just took place. They, they made quite a bit of profit, as we saw earlier in the text. They made quite a bit of profit off of this girl's suffering. And so they cause an uproar, and the entire town gets involved. The city leaders get involved. Paul and Silas are beaten, and then they are thrown in jail. Pick up in verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now we're introduced to this jailer, and, and he locks Paul and, and Silas up in these painful stocks for the night. And around midnight, we actually see that Paul and Silas, they're praying and they're singing praises to God, and that's actually worth a sermon all on its own. And this earthquake actually hits the jail. And once the earthquake hits the jail, the doors are open, the, the shackles fall off of not just Paul and Silas, but all of the other prisoners as well. And when the jailer sees this, he actually pour, pulls out his sword in order to kill himself. It's, it's better, in his mind, it's better to die now at his own hands than to die at the hands of the magistrates later on for neglecting his duty. But before he can do that, what is it that Paul says? Verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's such a powerful story, isn't it? Such a powerful story how God uses the witness of Paul and Silas. First, their joy while they are in prison. They are singing praises to God, this joy in their suffering. And he uses that to bring salvation to this man, to bring life to this man who was once dead in his sins. This man who was about to kill himself finds new life in Christ because of their joy in their suffering and not just his new life, 
but also a new life for his entire household, his entire family, hears of the mercy of God that God has had on people throughout the ages, and then they experience that exact same mercy through Paul and through Silas when they could have ran away, when they could have escaped. Instead, they stayed, and this man's life was therefore spared by their actions. And they experienced that mercy that God had on their husband or on their father or on their grandfather. And like this man, they say, sirs, what must I do to be saved? God uses these people that they had just beaten the day before. And what happens? Verse 33. And he, the jailer, took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. John Chrysostom was a pastor in the late 300s, early 400s, so a long time ago. Um, and he's typically known as one of, if not the greatest preacher in the church's history. And I love the way that he puts this. Describing what takes place in these verses, he says that he, the jailer, washed away their wounds, but the Lord washed away his sins. And that's exactly what we see here. This man, like Lydia, God intervened into his life and delivered him from his spiritual deadness. Like the slave girl, God works in, in, in his life and he brings him out of this bondage. And just like we saw with Lydia at the beginning of this chapter, how does he respond? He's, he responds by being baptized. And he shows Paul and Silas hospitality. He invites them into his home has a meal with them, and Jesus continues to build his church in Philippi. As we look at Acts 16, I, I, hopefully you've seen the message. As we look at Acts 16, we, we see that Jesus is the one who establishes the church in Philippi. No one else does. It's, it's abundantly clear that the one who is to credit for the growth of the church is Jesus and no one else. And of course, the implication is that it's not just the church in Philippi that Jesus gets the credit for building. That The implication is, of course, every single church, Jesus is the one who builds his church. He is the one who brings together drastically different pieces to build this beautiful tapestry of people from all sorts of backgrounds in order to build his church. And that's what I think Acts 16 is teaching us. Jesus builds his church with all sorts of people. Jesus builds his church with all sorts of people. I know this is certainly the case here at Crosswinds, that Jesus is building his church with all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, though with one goal that unites us, the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And because it is the Lord Jesus who is the one who is building his church in Philippi and today here in, in Spencer, because the Lord Jesus is the one who is the one who is able to open the hearts of people in order to pay attention to the gospel, because the Lord Jesus is the one who is at work in people's hearts to make them say, sirs, what must I do in order to be saved? We have this incredible freedom, this incredible freedom to share the gospel. We have freedom because just like Paul, there's zero pressure on us to get results. 
There is zero pressure on us to get results when we share the gospel. That's God's job. That's not mine. That's not your job as well. If you really want Jordan in order to to be able to open the hearts of people, in order to pay attention to the message of the gospel, that's too heavy of a burden for me to carry, for any one of us to carry. Now, yes, there is a word here about the importance of being faithful to take advantage of the opportunities to share the gospel with those who are around us. But... We do so without the burden of conversion. It is not our responsibility to make converts. It is our responsibility to share the gospel and let the Lord who opens the hearts of people to pay attention to the message of the gospel do what he sees fit. We have this incredible freedom when we share the gospel. If Jesus is the one who builds his church, and that's what we see here, then not Jordan, not you, But the Lord himself is the one that we can trust to bring about the results. The Lord Jesus builds his church with all sorts of people. And like we see in Philippi, the the results may surprise us. How, How many of us, if we were to start a church, if we were to pick who we were going to minister to, how many of us would pick the exact same people that the Lord Jesus picked? Notice how he starts his church in Philippi. He starts it with a religious woman, this wealthy woman, Lydia. He starts this with this girl who has been demon-possessed. And then he starts it with this jailer, most likely based off of the context of Philippi, an ex-military, Roman military soldier who is now serving in this blue-collar role as the, the leader of a jail. And those are the people, those three people in their households, at least for Lydia and the jailer, are the ones that Jesus says, with you, I'm going to start my church. And you know what? The church in Philippi is the first church that we know of in Europe. To this point, there was no church in Europe and God sees fit to build his church with these three people, the first church in European history. And that's the church that Paul is writing to in Philippi 10 years later. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, briefly just consider four themes that we see or we will encounter again and again in the book of Philippians. These are truths that are crucial for us as a church, just like they were crucial for the church in Philippi all those years ago. And this is the first one. Uh, The right perspective is the key for flourishing in suffering. The right perspective is key for flourishing in suffering. Paul is writing to this church that is enduring this hardship for the sake of the gospel. They're living in this broken world and they're continuing to enjoy, endure suffering from that as well. And he repeatedly tells them that, that it is impossible to endure this hardship without having the right perspective. And he doesn't only tell them, he actually shows them with his own life. Notice how Paul describes it in his own life in Philippians chapter 1. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What is Paul's perspective here on his suffering? Well, he prioritizes the spread of the gospel 
over anything else, even his present circumstances, his comforts, his conveniences. Of course, Paul would have much rather been out of house arrest. He wouldn't be in jail. Before he went into house arrest, Paul actually shared with the church in Rome. He said, you know what? It's my desire to go and share the gospel beyond you. I'd like to go all the way to Spain and share the gospel. Of course, he doesn't want to be in prison. But at the same time, Paul looks at his hardship and he looks at his suffering and he has such a confidence in God's sovereignty that God is in charge, that this is part of God's plan, that he looks at it through the lens of the gospel and he concludes that there, there are at least two things that wouldn't have been possible without him being imprisoned. And he shares them in these verses. First, he says, this this imprisonment has actually given me a platform to share the gospel with people who wouldn't have heard it without me being in prison. Who knows how many guards came to faith because they were watching Paul for over two years. At the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, Paul is giving his final greetings to the church in Philippi, and he actually shares this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How many of those who are in Caesar's household who are now brought to new life in Christ, who were once dead in their sins. God used Paul's imprisonment and suffering and hardship to bring the gospel to them. But it's not just that. Paul says, you know, that I imagine Paul would say that would be enough. But Paul also has, says that there's, a, there's something else that has happened because I am in prison. There's actually another good thing that has come out of this. That my imprisonment, my suffering, and my faithfulness to the gospel while I'm experiencing hardship and suffering has actually served as the catalyst for the rest of the church. Those who were once cowering in fear, they were scared, they were swallowing their words because they were afraid of suffering. They've actually seen me suffer and have said, hey, if Paul can do it while he's under house arrest, then I can surely share the gospel with my neighbor. And the gospel spreads even more. You see here that Paul looks at his hardship and he looks at it through the lens of the gospel. And in spite of his, his suffering, in spite of his hardship, he's able to separate himself from that, from those circumstances and, and, and recognize that in God's infinite wisdom and his unfathomable plan, people who were once dead are now alive. People who were once lost are now found. Those who were once afraid to share the gospel have grown a backbone and are now sharing the gospel. And the gospel is taking off like wildfire in Rome, all because Paul is in prison. And Paul has the right perspective that he can see that. And he says, hey, if if me being in prison is what it takes to see the gospel spread, then I will gladly stay in prison. The shackles on my wrist, the shackles on my ankles cannot chain the gospel as it spreads. And as I think of our own situation, I, I wonder the same thing. What of us? Of course, we're not suffering hardship for the sake of the gospel necessarily. We're just suffering hardship. But a couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of this pandemic, Douglas Wilson, he's a pastor, I think, in Idaho, he, he shared on a blog post these words, and I thought they were really timely. He says this, I would ask you this, what would you rather have? A roaring economy and a people who will not listen to the words of God or 
enormous economic challenges and a people who have been chastened to the point where they might listen to the words of free grace. But in order to have the latter, you might have to endure quite a bit of hardship yourself. Remember that. Now, what would you rather have? Would you rather, like Paul and and so many throughout the ages, are you able to say, I will gladly bear the hardship that I am experiencing right now so that the gospel might go forth, so that the lost might be found, that the dead might find life in Jesus. That's the right perspective to have as we want to flourish in our hardship and suffering. Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying for deliverance. Paul actually says that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. He, he alludes to the fact that he has encouraged the church in Philippi to be praying for his deliverance. And he's confident that we, he will eventually get out of house arrest. But we can't stop with verse 19. We also have to have the right perspective that leads us from verse 19 to verses 20 and 21, where Paul says this, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The right perspective is key to flourishing in suffering. Second theme that we're going to see crop up over and over again in the book of Philippians is all centered on joy. Unconquerable joy comes from our union with Christ, not our circumstances. If you want this joy that is unshakable, it doesn't come from our circumstances. It instead comes from Christ and the fact that we are united with him. Can you imagine how insufferable Paul was to the Roman authorities at this time? They throw him in prison and Paul says, you know what, this is actually a good thing because as I'm here in prison, I actually have uh, your undivided attention. I can now share the gospel with those who are chained to me because that's how the Romans did it, that I now have the opportunity to share the gospel with people I never would have had the chance to reach before. So thank you, sirs, for actually putting me here in prison. And the Roman authorities will, well, I, I don't really care for that. We might just go ahead and kill you. And Paul says, are you kidding me? That's even better. Because for me, to to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To be able to see Jesus face to face, to finally be united with him, to hear him say the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. You will now be entrusted with much. Come and enter into the rest and the joy of your master. That's all I've ever wanted to hear. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so that's what you're going to do. By all means, go for it. And again, they're like, well, I don't know. So to, to kill you is actually to give you something that's even better than where you are right now. So maybe we'll go ahead and, and just beat you. We'll leave you in prison. And Paul responds as he does in, in chapter 1. He says, you know, every single ounce of blood that you, of my blood that you shed actually serves and strengthens the church to go ahead and share the gospel on their own. So go ahead and do your worst. How is it that Paul has this mindset that that to be united with Christ, not only now, but also in our death and our resurrection, is, is so 
is so important to Paul that, that anything that happens to him, he can find a reason to rejoice. Well, it's what I just said. That Paul is so confident that he is united with Christ in Christ's death and resurrection that nothing can ever separate him from that. I did a quick uh, look this past week, just reading through the book of Philippians, uh, at how many times Paul references or alludes to the fact that we as Christians are united with Christ. And I found at least 35 different times in this four, the four short chapters of this book where Paul references over and over and over and over again how important it is for us to be united with Christ. For us to be connected with him, that we cannot be separated. And that's what leads Paul to be able to say, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, because of what Jesus has done for Paul in the gospel, it means that every single breath that Paul takes is an opportunity for him to live for Jesus, to spread the kingdom, to, to honor Jesus with his life, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. On the flip side, to die is gain. And this makes absolutely no sense to us. It's a ridiculous statement. Unless we understand that we are united with Christ and that nothing can separate us from him. That neither life nor death nor powers nor things to come will separate us from the love of Christ. And so Paul is expressing joy that is inexpressible for most people today without Christ. In spite of his circumstances, this gives Paul the assurance to say what we see in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am made perfect, but I press on to make it known because Christ Jesus had made me his own. I love that language. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, anyone th if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." In those words, where do we see Paul's joy? It's found in his union with Christ, not in his circumstances. Two more themes, just briefly. Third one is this, found in Philippians. God's people are to live lives that are worthy of their great salvation. God's people are, are to live lives that, are, that is worthy of their great salvation. If there was a main point of the book of Philippians, I think it would be this. Look at uh, verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake, for the faith of the gospel. You know, if you've been saved by the incredible free grace, the free gift of the gospel, and in that grace that you have been united with Christ, then how can you go on living like the rest of the world? This is Paul's chief concern here in this prayer for the church in Philippi, the beginning of the book. His, Paul, his prayer isn't that they would avoid suffering or that their hardship was, would end. His prayer isn't that God would bless them. His prayer isn't that God would be with them. His prayer instead is that they would bear fruit in the midst of their hardship and suffering to bring honor to the praise of Jesus 
in the day that Christ returns. Philippians 1. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Later in chapter 2, he says that in a morally bankrupt world, God's people are instead to shine like stars. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Kurt actually preached this passage, those two verses, in Spirit Lake, and, and that sermon is available online. How easy it is for us to, to grumble in the midst of this current season. As we find ourselves in the COVID-19 pandemic, it is so easy for us to grumble, to, to find things to not be thankful for, and, and that's really the air that we breathe. And, and Paul says, in this context, we're supposed to be blazing lights that stick out in a sea of darkness that God's people are to live lives worthy of their great salvation. Fourth one, final theme, selflessness is essential to the health of the church and to the furthering of the gospel. This is seen throughout Paul's letter. As we look at Philippians, this powerful passage about Jesus in Philippians 2 that many of us are familiar with, about the, the humbling and then the exalting of Christ Jesus, it actually comes in the context of Paul encouraging the church to live lives of selflessness as well, Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the others. Selflessness here is, is essential to the life of the church. Just think of, of Lydia and the jailer as they expressed hospitality to Paul. This is one of the ways that, that we see the, the selflessness of the church. What is mine is now yours, and it's key to a healthy church. But also consider how it is, uh, selflessness is also used by God to, to spread the gospel. Look again back at Acts 16. In Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul and Silas, they're imprisoned, and when God causes this earthquake to shake the, the prison walls and, and to actually break down the gates, they have the opportunity to escape. And I don't actually think it would have been wrong for them to escape. But instead, they chose to stay. They chose to stay in prison, even though they had no guarantee of what would happen to them. They chose to stay in prison for the possibility, not the guarantee, the possibility that it might lead to the salvation of the Philippian jailer. And that is radical selflessness. In this world that primarily pursues its own good, that's what it means to be a blazing light in the darkness of the world. It's not just being a bit above normal, but instead this light that shines so bright and so intensely that people look at it and say, sirs, what must I do in order to be saved? Selflessness is essential to the health of the church and to the furthering of the gospel. I'm so excited to work our way through this book as a church because I think it's this message is, is exactly what we need to hear today. It's certainly what I want to, or I need to hear today. And so as, as we close, I just want to end with our overarching theme in Philippians. And it is this, the, live a life worthy of the Lord who opened your heart to hear 
the gospel. Especially in seasons of hardship, especially in seasons of suffering and of difficulty, we have this wonderful opportunity to shine like stars in a bleak and dreary world. And as we close, I just want to share, um, the book of Philippians means a whole lot to me because of the story of my own conversion, my own calling into ministry. When I was in high school, I was involved in this outreach ministry down in southwest Iowa that was, was ministering to troubled youth in our community. And I got asked to be a part of it, and looking back, I can see I was a whole lot like Lydia. Thousands of years ago, I was this religious person. I had my life up, uh, put together, but I was also separated, with, separated from Christ. And here I was, I was this person that was deeply religious like Lydia, and I was, I was doing what, was, what, what seemed to be the work of God, and yet I was far from God, and I'm serving these people who are a lot like this slave girl, who find themselves in bondage, or I, a lot like the Philippian jailer, this pe- these people who don't really want anything to do with God and are not really interested in religious things, only earth real- earth, earthly realities. And yet, in that experience, God used, to use the language of, of Acts chapter 16, God used that experience to open my heart that I could pay attention to the message of the gospel. I grew up in a Christian home. I had heard the gospel many times, but it wasn't until those years that I had really ever had the chance to pay attention to it. And you might be saying, what exactly does that have to do with Philippians? Well, this ministry that I was a part of, it had a theme verse. That theme verse has really been just an anchor for me, a, a place of confidence in the midst of the seasons and storms of life. It's a reminder to me that the, when I fail God, his love for me endures. His steadfast love will see me through until the end. And it is this, Philippians chapter 1. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Have you a confidence that the Lord Jesus has begun a good work in you? If he hasn't begun this good work in you, or you're not really sure if he has, why not today? Perhaps right now the Lord is opening your heart to pay attention to the message of the gospel. So pay attention. Listen that you might believe and be saved. And for others of us, yeah, maybe God, we know that that God has begun a good work in us and we have this confidence that he will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And so we are to live lives worthy of the Lord who has opened our hearts so that we can hear the message of the gospel. He will finish what he started. For our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We have endless reasons to rejoice because we're a part of a church. We're a part of a family that Jesus built. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for the message of the gospel. And I I even just thank you for the words of Acts 16 and how those were recorded for us to see how you built the church, how you were at work in establishing the church in Philippi. 
God, we, we rejoice that you are sovereign and Lord of all. And that you also desperately and deeply care for each and every one of us. So help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live lives worthy of the Lord who has opened our heart. That we might hear the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.